0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Jim Melward. Masks in schools. The debate's been raging for more than a year and a half, but a lot's changed compared to this time last year. So I reached out to Dr. David Rubin. He's the director of CHOP Policy Lab. They've been pretty key in informing school boards and administrators on how to handle everything from in person learning, hybrid learning, physical distancing, and now. Once again, center stage, masks. A couple of key points to remember as you listen to this. Masks are shown to be effective at slowing the spread of COVID, but they're not without a downside. We really don't have a firm grip yet on the cost of putting kids in masks for the better part of the past two years. Also, Dr. Rubin will explain this a lot better than I can, but the CDC issues blanket guidance for the entire country. A school in rural Montana is different than a school in Philadelphia is different than a school in Montgomery County. Now, as Dr. Rubin points out, the CDC does not deal much in nuance. Their goal is to avoid all risk. So it's up to the local decision makers to figure out how to make CDC recommendations work in their little corner of the world. And that sounds a lot easier than it is. But here's Dr. Rubin. What, what are the focuses right now? And, and, and obviously, you know, we're talking about masks, and that seems to be a, a really important issue, especially with schools. What are you guys kind of focusing on right now, whether it's case counts or mitigation where where's where are your heads?
1: Well, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think it all starts with the guidance we put out a couple of weeks ago. We recognize that at a time of really high case incidents and while our hospitals were struggling, that schools continuing to um, require students to wear masks just until we got over the top of this made some practical sense. But we're in a very different position right now. We even pointed out then that we for most individuals, the spectrum of illness we were seeing, particularly for those who were vaccinated, was much lower. With this variant it doesn't mean that some people did not have severe disease. And there was a, just a sheer magnitude of individuals who were infected. But you fast forward now two or three weeks and case incidence has dropped rapidly. Um, our hospitalizations have dropped rapidly. We're down more than 80 percent just at CHOP alone and probably more than 50 percent now among the adult hospitals. So when you look, you know, to me, when you when you judge the moment and the opportunity to continue, to sort of adapt your, you know, your policies, particularly around schools, in relationship to really what is a changing spectrum of illness, um, declining incidents, declining hospitalizations, and in recognition that there's a moment here, a window that's opening up, in recognition of that, when vaccinations are available and when, and when people have choices, it's, you know I think uh, that we could uh, start to align school policy with the way we think about. Uh, covid covid sort of recommendations uh, from public health for the rest of our communities and i think there's an important moment to recognize as well that the competing risks of not allowing flexible choice uh, in terms of of the uncertain impacts uh, to some kids who who it's been a long haul and and for families kids with learning issues uh, kids with mental health issues or isolation or you know, That those issues now become more paramount, and that you have to take your opportunity or your window when it opens, and recognize that returning choices to families is an acceptable risk given given a fair, balanced uh, read of the evidence at this point.
0: You mentioned you know that that numbers are down significantly, but that number, my understanding, was very high. So, if you're eighty percent down from a very high number, do you kind of?
1: Well, our hospitalization numbers are very, are very, are similar at this point to where they were in fall during the the lowest part of the season, and actually, in our weekly testing program of teachers in Philadelphia, we're seeing rates that are uh, almost as low as the lowest we saw in uh, September, October among our teachers. So it it really has changed quickly. We're seeing numbers about you know among teachers in terms of asymptomatic screening rates that are about one in three fifty at this point. Um, you know, very quickly within the next couple of weeks, we suspect that the positivity rate will will drop below one in five hundred. So that has changed very quickly. And we're seeing uh, you know, the case incidence that's reported weekly is not as up to the moment as our weekly testing program is because we're we're testing the same teachers week in and week out.
0: And I I I read that on your blog, the asymptomatic and and the numbers there. Can, can you kind of explain, not not in depth, but just kind of the, the changes that you're seeing with asymptomatic?
1: Well, you know, since uh, last year, particularly in the school district of Philadelphia, you know, because, you know, they're in a very, very you know, huge school district, you know, older buildings, um, you know, large, you know, uh, dense, large, densely uh, or densely crowded, very uh, um, uh, classrooms with high, you know, numbers of students. That, for their, that their school safety plan that they developed has required teachers to be tested every week um, as part of a way of decanting, if you will, those who are positive and quickly isolating those so that they don't uh, pose a risk of infection to others in the building or to uh, their colleagues. Um, so those numbers have been a really nice, you know, a nice way to look at what is an actual rate of, of risk. Because it's the same cohort that's that's tested week in and week out, and we saw over you know um, these are individuals identified as asymptomatic, and we saw a rate that was as high as twenty five percent of those who chose to get screened uh, between Christmas and New Year's and continue their screening, um, and it's dropped back very quickly. So from one in four, it was then you know sort of about one in ten when they came back the first week in January, and and very quickly has now dropped to about one in three fifty. In terms of the positivity rate, uh, and, and and so you know, to me that what that says, if you're an individual in that school or or um, a teacher or school staff, that the likelihood that you're going to encounter someone who is potentially infectious is is about one in three fifty and dropping right now. And that's a you know, given that 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 particularly in the school district of Philadelphia, people are still masked, you know, the the likelihood of a transmission event is much lower than you would see in other areas of the community
0: the the one point that you guys have have made and everyone's made uh, along the way is these decisions are unique to each i mean you mentioned philadelphia and the challenges that they face with ventilation what's kind of your message to to schools and communities as as they're making these decisions what are some of the 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 top line things that that they should be focused on when they're deciding what to do
1: Look, when the facts change, we have to be willing to change as well too. And you know, this is a very highly dynamic pandemic. And the data and the evidence of what we're seeing is changing as we go. And so the real question is what are the most important factors that determine your opportunity to start removing some of the scaffolding uh, that we uh, had, you know, frankly needed during a period when we had a really, Virulent virus and an unvaccinated public. The goal then was to eliminate exposure risk. We talked about this. Um, now it's you know, you're really managing transmission, and you're in a moment where we have interventions available: vaccinations and masks for individuals to choose from uh, in terms of protecting them themselves and their families. Um, we're dealing with a less virulent strain, and so to me, I prioritize for schools that are working through this decision is to think about, you know. Is to incorporate the fact that you now, you know, the the calculus has changed, and is a lot more weighted to the concerns about the continued risk of significant restrictions that prohibit movement of kids through schools or take choices away from families in terms of what two years uh, of masking and required masking in schools may may have been interpreted by by many families and in their own eyes, what they've seen is, you know, most kids have been fine with it. You know, if we have a, a, a conversation, most kids just shrug it off but we have to accept that there are kids for whom it you know, it may not have been fine. And, uh, and for each family thats uh, that they're weighing different challenges around learning styles, the risk of continued social isolation. And when we have an opportunity to see that that calculus has really shifted in favor of understanding that we need to adapt, we need to provide um, flexibility, to the needs of many families now that, that the virulence uh, has really suggested and, and the availability of other uh, interventions that we have an opportunity now to to really start uh, returning choices and to 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 reduce the footprint of required restrictions and public health um, uh intervention within the school districts
0: and i I don't ask this question to try to you know pit you against the Cdc or anything but the one of the the key metrics that that's been out there are the Cdc transmission levels um but that came out several months ago and as you mentioned things have some things have changed, you know, vaccination rates, immunity, et cetera, Um, how much much stock should be put? And again, not trying to make you second guess the CDC or anything along along those lines, but I I guess, you know, a way to ask this, you know, would you recommend revisiting those? Um, How much weight should decision makers be putting on those? Or is it just kind of too difficult to say?
1: Look, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for the CDC. I have a lot of respect for our public health departments. Every, you know, CDC represents all schools. They represent the small school in a rural county, but they also represent very large school districts that are still struggling to keep their kids in schools and dealing with large quarantines. Um, there are some areas of the country with very high rates. To me, I, I look at the public health guidance as guidance and provides a roadmap for how to think about these issues. I don't believe in strict thresholds because you know there's concerns about data accuracy at this level. There's obviously concerns about whether You know, fifty or hundred per hundred thousand represents the same thing in Omicron that it did during the Delta uh, surge, and I think those are you know you 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 can't be beholden in this consideration to a specific number. You need to understand the relative trends, which which would lead you to make this decision. And like I said, understanding that the spectrum of illness has gone down, understanding that hospitalizations uh, for those that were waiting for community hospitals to recover a bit that has improved understanding that vaccines, uh, the level of availability um, that has been provided to the community, uh, you've checked that mark. And it's really about picking the moment with respect to exposure risk where you feel like your community is ready to make that next transition. And I think that for every school community, that's an individual decision. I understand the school communities that have already made that choice. I think we're seeing a lot of now, states now move in that direction and recognize that February was when that window was going to open up, and it has. Um, but I also recognize that there are school districts and, and areas, particularly in our large cities, that may need to be a little bit more cautious and slower in making that decision. Uh, you know, they have, a, they have other challenges, uh, still questioning whether access has been widely made available for vaccination, dealing with older infrastructure, crowded classrooms. And so, you know, the, the margin for error is smaller. So to me, I think what I'm recognizing is we need to return these choices locally and then help schools weigh the the trends in these issues and in, in finding the solution that works for their community.
0: I, I had said in the email that I'm tangentially working on the court case that was uh, the, the opinion that was issued. Do you want to weigh in on that? I don't, I'm, I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't and if. You know,
1: but I'll, I'll I can't. I can't weigh in on that. You know, I'm not familiar with the the court issue. I will say though that you know my my understanding of the decisions that are a lot of our superintendents are making outside the city are really heavily weighted in the evidence. Uh, you know, they you know, um, and recognizing you know that there's that this isn't a um, that this is a dynamic issue that that the risks. If you will ha- have been changing across time, and my assessment of uh, you know in the conversations I've had with uh, with the schools and particularly Montgomery County is the assessment that was being made in terms of the moment to consider mask optional policies was based on a careful review of the evidence, um, and very and uh, and I think we have to honor that and and recognize that Perkiomen. Was not the only school district doing this and now in the last couple of days we've seen entire states begin to move in this direction and i i think that speaks for itself
0: cloth masks have been in in question you know there's a, a movement i understand I, I don't do a lot in philadelphia but i think there's a movement to uh you know kn95s or 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 uh, n95 masks how much of a, a value do do you place on or have you looked at that have you had a chance to look at kind of the different masks and, and the value, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I I know it's challenging. You hear people say, you know, EMTs or, or anyone, you take a lot of training on how to use an N95 mask. So when you give a kid an N95 mask, is there much difference over a surgical mask? Have, have you been able to weigh that at all or?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I do think that that when properly fitted, a KN95 mask it's used in very in relatively few circumstances at at the Children's Hospital, particularly when we're doing aerosolizing procedures in a high risk situation. Um, but by and large, our staff is largely is mostly wearing surgical masks, and you can there's plenty of instruction on how to make sure they fit well. And you know, I know there was a highly publicized study at the CDC last week that that some people interpreted as suggesting that KN95s were superior. Um, to surgical masks, which were superior to cloth masks. We've always believed that both k 95s and surgical and the three-ply surgical masks were superior, but we, you know, we were, you know, I think we and CDC, you know, um, in particular was comfortable that if, if an individual was wearing masks and conferred some protection, I think it's, I, I would be cautious though, to interpret from that study last week. There's a variety of limitations of that study that, that I, I think it's, it's, it, it it is um, it's a stretch to be able to compare surgical to KN95 masks because it also commingles with behavior. Those you know it's based on real world experience, and those who wear the KN95s probably have different risk of, uh, avoidant behavior than those who are just wearing surgical masks or, or cloth masks, and that can't be uh, well accounted for in that kind of study. So I was pretty pleased with the amount of protection that the surgical and the KN95s and it's and for me I actually interpreted that again more confirmation that a three-ply mask is fairly acceptable for those who are trying to reduce risk during periods of high transmission
0: I I, I chuckle but I was just on a flight and uh, I was wearing a KN95 with a beard (laughs) I'm sitting there thinking like well this is
1: yeah so so uh, you know how much was that helping you you need to shave right right? yeah
0: well that (laughs) (laughs) sound like my wife um you know, we talked about it here and we talked about it before the, the risk benefit, you know, that, that masks aren't masks in schools aren't uh, uh, there, there's a downside to masks in schools. And we're hearing more and more and more about that, about the, the challenges with that. And, and I know you touched on a little bit here, but but if you could kind of address, you know, your message when, when you talk to school districts or, or school officials on how to kind of weigh that and, and where we are, you know, two years into that with that.
1: Look, I think kids have been fairly resilient in terms of their wearing of the masks. Um, but I, I think when I talk to folks who recognize that we need to start moving this along and they ask me about the adverse you know, consequences of masks, we have to concede we don't have a lot of data on what prolonged avoidant behavior of restrictions that you know minimize the amount of contact or time spent, let's say, during lunchtime, et cetera, has on the well-being of children um, that masking may have on learning style, particularly for younger children or attachment or, or early friendship development. Um, and, and recognizing that we don't have that information, we have to concede that there is a risk there. And the longer we go uh, it, uh, through a time in which we require uh, something of all families who are weighing these risks with firsthand knowledge of their own children, um, we have to ask whether, whether it's still necessary and the moment um, the risk has dropped to a um, sufficient level to return these choices to families who know their kids better than anyone else. I think it's critical to recognize those moments and that window has opened up. And I think the calculus in terms of competing risks is a fair concern right now, uh, given, uh, given the improving situation on the ground.
0: When you when you say that CDC is is doing everything from rural to urban to to crowded schools to to spaced out schools, it's a challenge to kind of have that one size fits all approach. That it 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 should really come down to to local decision.
1: Or- that's what we've been saying since the beginning. I think that's the takeaway. I mean, I, I think the CDC. You know, they weigh the evidence. They're providing you a an, an, you know a an elimination, uh, a strategy that if you're if you are a, a local area that's trying to eliminate risk, what that looks like. They're not providing you nuance um, in 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 those discussions, and that's their job. It's up to these local schools and their boards to weigh how to incorporate that information in terms of the risk tolerance of the community and the greater needs of that community in terms of where on that spectrum, they're fully adopting those recommendations or where there's flexibility to actually chart out their own course. And uh, And I think that more and more as, as disease incidence improves, as this virus changes, as people have been offered vaccination, um, there's a healthy amount of respect for how much of these really are local decisions, and to allow that flexibility to return to these communities.
0: Part of the 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 lawsuit was kind of the basis of, of CDC, Pennsylvania Department of Health, and Montgomery County Office of Public Health recommending masks. That was that was pretty key in when you read the judge's opinion. She mm-hmm. she hits that a few times. Um, and then another part of it was that that Perkiman Valley didn't and I'm I'm summarizing here, but Perkiman Valley didn't uh have any guideposts or metrics or or matrix or um a grid that would kind of say, when we hit this, we put masks on, when we hit
1: this, we take masks off. let's see, here's that therein lies, I think, an important distinction here, because the health department is recommending masks appropriately. Um and what Perkiman is choosing to do is not require kids to take off the masks. What it's doing is moving to a policy that says masks are highly recommended at this level of transmission, um, but it's recommended. And that's what the health uh, departments have done since mid-January, particularly, you know, even before the the prior case. Since mid-January, there hasn't been a a public order for required masking in schools. And so really what you're doing is you're you're transitioning um, to a... um, to a school safety plan that aligns its recommendations with the recommendations of the health department, which is recommendations and the schools that have already made this transition. I think we've been actually, you know, you know, pretty respectful that most kids will follow the recommendations and families will follow the recommendations of the health departments. And that this is, this is really just moving, not from a wearing mask to not wearing mask, but to a dial up, dial down based on families interpreting uh, guidance, and and so to me, that's an important distinction here. It's not masks off; it's it's recommended masking. That's what's that's what we're transmission uh, transitioning to here.
0: That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app. You can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And Jim Melwert will have another episode out soon.